probably four summers ago, is that right? Why don't you come out? Come out here. Well, let's welcome uh, David and uh, Melanie. There we go. So it was about four summers ago you were here? Yeah, I think it was about something like that. Four summers. It's been a while. It has. A lot's happened. Yep. Um, I'm going to start with Melanie because... Um, I've got the joy of hosting today, but we've never met until about, quarter, about ten past six. Uh, I know you're from Australia, and I know you're working alongside David, but can you give us a little, little bit of a story of, um, in a few minutes, of what it's like, where, how you grew up, where, when you came to faith? Yeah, um, I can do that. So my name is Melanie. I'm Australian, as suggested. Um, I'd call Tasmania home, um, but was a military kid, so we moved around basically the eastern seaboard of Australia, so actually was born in far north Queensland and kind of bounced around the place a bit. Um, but yeah, so grew up mostly in Tassie, spent about 15 years there from primary school through to high school and I did uni there as well. And so um, came to faith when I was about year seven, so it's like 13, I want to say, somewhere around there. Um, actually was at a church Easter camp, so huge love for everyone who does youth camps. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, I just remember that was church camp and we were kayaking and doing all sorts of fun things, but just kind of the first time that I, in an Easter Friday session of the first time feeling like, oh, this is what was done for me. And so that was kind of my moment where I had grown up. Um, my mum was a Christian, went to, ooh, got louder, um, went to church as a kid, but that was kind of my moment of, okay, God is real to me, not just this thing that we go to each Sunday. Um, so that kind of continued through high school, went to a Christian high school, um, and then, yeah, ended up in YWAM quite a few years later. So between sort of 13 and YWAM, give us a, give us a potted history of that. Um, so I suppose I kind of got there. So in year 10, I want to say 11 of high school, um, my school did uh, mission trips to Fiji, and so we went up the Navua River. Um, and delivered um, around about 300 kilos of medical aid to one of the hospitals there, um, and then did um, school programs and different things up the river as we went. And so no, I was actually on a trip there. It's a very charming story. Basically, I had a friend who vomited every 27 minutes for an entire evening. It's like Old Faithful. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I remember that because it was like, if she doesn't vomit for 30 minutes, we can go to sleep and we're probably okay. In 27 minutes on the dot. And so it was a very long evening on a rickety veranda upriver. But I remember, like, great stars, though. If you're ever up for stargazing while you're looking after someone who's vomiting, Fiji, totally recommend it. Okay. Um, but up there, I remember feeling, God say, right, we're going to go into nursing, which at that stage was, like, awesome. I have something to tell my teachers each time. They're like, so what do you want to do with your life? And so went into nursing after that um, and always felt called from then of as part of that call into nursing, felt God say, and we're going to go to the Pacific Islands. And so went to uni, went into nursing, became a nurse, became a very disgruntled nurse because I was working in the hospitals and I kind of had put off mission work being like, I know where I want to end up, but that's something that you do when you're much older and have tons of experience and you can do all the things. Um, and then, yeah, I had a friend who I grew up with basically having a cup of tea at her place having a bit of a grumble, to be completely honest, um, and was saying, like, I've got an itch that I can't scratch. I've changed jobs. I've changed states. I did a lot of backpacking, which was a lot of fun, um, but was like, I have this itch, and I don't know how to scratch it, and I don't know what I'm going to do. 
and she looked at me and said, how are you going to scratch, you know, how are you meant to find your satisfaction if this isn't the nursing you were called for? Which was like an oof moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she completely missed it, went up to make a cup of tea. And I sat there going, I've got a bit more of an appreciation of the burning bush and how that would have been a wee bit terrifying. Very convenient, but also like, okay, God has spoken. Um, and so signed up for YWAM to go just for two weeks because I worked as an ophthalmology scrub scout. So worked in operating ser- uh, theatres for eye surgery. So went up to the ship because they did eye surgery. And what, what year was this? When? In 2019. Um, and so went up there to do eye surgery and assist with that. And then within like two days was like, oh, okay, God, this is where I'm meant to be. But I've got no idea what that looks like. But then, yeah, stuck around ever since. Okay. So Alan, we're a little bit echoey down here. I don't know if you can... Yeah. If we share that one, maybe it's... Yeah, I know. Is that better? So what was... The, when you said you couldn't scratch this itch and then you got... Don't be scared of the mic. Uh, and then you... We'll just pop that on the floor. It'll be fine. Um, and you said that the nursing, when you got to the ship, it was like, this is what I mean. What was it in that that, that was... You got rid of the itch, or beginning to? I'm not ever entirely sure with this one, because it was like, I had an amazing job in terms of nursing jobs. It ticked all the boxes. I had great colleagues, it paid well. I only have to work four days a week. Like, it was a great job. Um, But it was like that long-term satisfaction that just wasn't there. It was like, this is great, and I love it, but this is just not where I'm meant to be. But didn't know where I was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then got to the ship, and... Um, where we do eye surgery is actually on the back of the ship and we bring patients back the next morning to have um, eye patches taken off and do visual checks. Um, and I wasn't useful for that because I work in theatre and so I was just hanging out on the deck watching it because it's pretty amazing watching people who haven't seen for like 15 years and were told two days ago, we could probably fix that and then watch them do that so it's a good place to hang out. But just standing there watching that and was like, oh, the, the, I don't have that itch. Mm-hmm. And just that bit of, I suppose that... Not even satisfaction, but that just sense of, like, this is where I'm meant to be, that you can't really understand. And I go back to that verse, I think it's end of Philippians, of, like, that peace of God that defies all understanding. Mm. And that was kind of one of those moments of, like, oh, I, I have no reason for this and I've got no idea what this life looks like, but this is, this is it. Mm. And in that listening to court, I'll get to you in a minute, David. Uh, <laughs> In that call, what, what are some of the things that you look back and reflect on and say, that's, that's the call of the Lord, that's how I discerned it. What were some of the factors in that? I think there were, like, there were quite a few along the line for me. I think one of them was um, that verse actually follows me in some way. Um, had that in Fiji and then actually went to a church service in PNG that trip while very much keeping it to myself of, I think this is what I want to do, but I've got no idea and was sitting in a church service that is all in a different language, so no English, and basically staring at my feet. I was very wet getting out of a boat, so I'm growing this puddle and trying not to get the person next to me wet. It was kind of my main concentration in that church service, which is great. Um, but the only English in that service spoken was that verse. Mm-hmm. And so that was like in the whole thing of like sitting there, watching my puddle grow, praying of like, God, what does this even look like if I made this a thing? And then hearing that again of like, oh, there's that peace that goes with it. And then I actually got home and the, my older brother picked me up from the airport 
and there was no like, hi, how was it? How was your flight? Heard you got in a bit late. It was like, so when are you going back? And then to hear him confirm that, and then my mum got home, same thing of like, so you're going, right? And just a series of people were like, this is, once you're going, like, this is where we think you're going to end up. So there was just a lot of, I think, peace with that decision and just felt that it was right. And then to have the other people in my life speak that as well and be like, yes, we think this is what's so there's, that, there's that sort of internal sense of being stirred up. There's something I don't fit. There's a sense of there's something more. There's more to yeah. the career. Through the scriptures, just that wonderful way God's spoken into, like ran, not randomly, but in an unusual context and, and through people you trust. Yeah, and I think that was a huge part of it too because it was like, okay, I know I'm going, but then to walk into family members who were like, you are going, right? And just to have that repeatedly come through other people as well who believed and felt that was right for me and probably also would have set me down to be like, you've done this, this is what you were aiming for, you are continuing this. Yeah. And just have that kind of trace, trust and faith in them to have it confirmed that way as well was pretty nifty. Brilliant, thanks, thanks Melanie. I know there's a video coming, um, whilst I've been on sabbatical, um, it's kind of aware that you're coming and uh, I was reflecting, pass the mic to Dave, it's his turn. And uh, it was, it was um, 12 years ago, I mean, you've been part of this church since you were a wee nipper, uh, pretty much, and part of junior church and youth group, which we won't track too much. Um, this is for the benefit of those who don't know, David. But we were, 12 years, 12 years ago, we went to Kenya on a, a mission trip, and we got back early August. When you look back to that time and then to now, give us some of the contours that God's led you in. And, um... Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, that Kenyan trip was my first... Uh, overseas mission trip, um, which I didn't think I enjoy, would enjoy, but I really enjoyed it because, um, like, sharing my faith or doing crazy stuff like that wasn't who I thought I was. Um, so after that Kenyan trip, um, I think I went, went off to uni, and it was my final year at university. Um, I randomly met this guy from church. Uh, never met him before, um, but he was with YWAM, and he basically just randomly asked me, do you want to come to the Philippines on a mission trip? And I'd, I'd never met him before. He, he didn't know, like, my background, um, but I was like, yeah, sure, it sounds fun. Uh, and you were kind of, like, panicking at that point with dissertation, and you are going to, you know, were you going to pass or fail, and it was a bit of a crisis yeah, moment, wasn't it? because I think that was around my exam time as well. Um, but I guess it was a good distraction from revising. Um, <laughs> so yeah, went to the Philippines. Uh, and the thing that I guess clicked the most is that I can use like my interests uh, like in missions. Because uh, in the Philippines, we were like, working with street children, uh, using like sports as a way to get communities together uh, and just interact. And then at halftime, we'll have some food, some snacks. Uh, then carry on with the next half. Uh, and then there'd be like a, just a short, someone would just share a testimony or a short verse. Uh, and then we all go our separate ways. And some of the kids would just stay just to hang out and chat. Uh, so that was like a side of missions that I'd never really seen before and really enjoyed it. Uh, so after that mission trip, I pretty much applied to go back with YWAM. Uh, they do like their entry school, uh, which is called a discipleship training school. Uh, which is like six months. Uh, half of it's like just lecture phase, 
learning about God. Um, and then the other half is like you go out. Uh, so I went out to China and South Korea. Uh, this was in 2015, I think, or 14. So just, just, and you said that, you kind of, yeah, I went to Bible college and I was like studying the Bible. I remember yeah. you read the scriptures kind of through really in a, in a few months. And yeah. I remember having a conversation with you. You were delving <laughs> into the deep depths of the Old Testament. Yep. I remember you at youth group, getting you to open a Bible was impossible, <laughs> literally. I mean, you'd hide it. And What was it that God did in your heart between that and then, you know, that, there's, that a passion was stirred and, and this sort of sense of God's at work in your life? Can you look with reflection, what was it that went on, do you think? Um, I think it was just like experiencing life and finding that what I was doing just really didn't satisfy but then when I always looked back at like my happiest moments, it was always uh, out doing like missions or things like that, um, which kind of, and I just always gave me a lot of peace and I just wanted to go back out there, uh, which again, didn't really suit my character if you knew me. Um, <laughs> but I always had like that peace when I thought about uh, just doing overseas stuff, overseas missions. Yeah. Brilliant. So you were, yeah, you were in China. And, uh, yep, China, uh, South Korea, working with North Korean refugees and disabled uh, kids in orphanages. Uh, and at the end of that, I came back. I think I had like 50 pounds in my bank account. Uh, and that's when I felt God call me to do this nine-month Bible study school where you read each book five times. Uh, so it's pretty intense. Uh, and I think the reason why I decided to do that was because out in China and South Korea, uh, that's kind of when it hit me that I had no clue what the Bible was about. And if I'm gonna like be in missions long-term, it's probably a good idea <laughs> to, to know what it's about. Um, and I, yeah, I hated lectures, but I absolutely loved all the lectures on the Bible school. Um, I guess it was like kind of like reading the Bible for the first time and like seeing a complete story and just really enjoyed it. Um, and then while I was towards the end of that course, I was again praying what to do next. Uh, and that's when I got given a picture of a ship uh, sailing around Papua New Guinea. Uh, and I had no idea Papua New Guinea existed. So I just put it into Google, uh, ship Papua New Guinea. And the first thing that came up was YWAM, medical ship. I mean, that's really just the context. Of so Helen, dear Helen, was in Papua New Guinea for 27 years, I think, a missionary from here, and would regularly come back and spoke at youth group about Papua New Guinea, <laughs> just to drop you in it. And it went right over your head. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but Google sorted it. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that just, I, as soon as I went there, I knew that was the place that I was like called to. Uh, I spent like the first year, uh, so I actually did a primary healthcare course. I never imagined I'd get into like medicine or things like that. Um, but I just loved how you could learn like simple skills, uh, like um, and I just like good hygiene, finding clean water, doing a malaria test, mm -hmm. and just how that simple knowledge could make such a huge impact in like the really remote places in Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. uh, which I loved because I was good at simple, easy stuff. Um, and yeah, just seeing how that can make a huge impact. And I pretty much just stuck with the ship. 
uh, and with Australia with YWAM since then. Brilliant. Well, let's have a look at the video, which yeah. um, shows us a bit of insight of what you do. Victor, I come from Papua New Guinea. I love my country. It is so beautiful and so diverse. We are known as the land of the unexpected, the latest explored country on earth. We are made up of many different tribes, each with their own traditions. Me and my people live in villages. We live in high mountains, jungles, rivers and the coast. Though we have much beauty, we are facing very big healthcare challenges. Many of our women die in childbirth. We have one of the highest rates in the world. TB has been declared as a national emergency. Our children are dying of preventable and treatable diseases. Many of us will never see a dentist in our lifetime. Hundreds of thousands of people have low vision or no vision at all. Makasi had been blind for 10 years. Her and her family heard about the ship being in their area and paddled in their canoe for two weeks to see if there was anything that we could do for her eyesight. After a 45 minute operation, her sight was restored to perfect vision. She saw her three children for the very first time that day. She went from someone that was downcast, that had no hope in her face, to someone that had light in her eyes, someone that had hope and excitement for her future. It's so amazing what happens when the ship first comes into the village. All the men, the women, the children, they all gather along the, the shores and they start singing, start dancing. The ship is more than bringing healthcare. Um, it's, it's really bringing life and really giving them hope for the future. On board the ship, we have a day surgery unit, a laboratory, dental clinic, and lecture theaters, which allows us to bring specialized care right there to the people in the community, in the villages. It is a partnership in the true sense, in that it is helping to assist and support and promote uh, what is already contained uh, in our national health plan and uh, working very much in collaboration with the existing health system. The training element of the medical ship is very, very important. What that does, especially our health workers working in remote settings and those difficult settings, it empowers them, it strengthens them. It gives them that uh, someone does care. I've been involved now for over 30 years and really it comes back to we want to help people and uh, so many people don't have the opportunity to have basic health care or training and it's just such a privilege because the true value, the true resource, the true uh, gold that's within the nation of Papua New Guinea is its people. My dream, I want to be a um, nurse. I want to help my people in this district and country. One of the things I love most about the work of the ship is seeing young Papua New Guineans engaged. Seeing young passionate uh, Papua New Guineans from urban centres able to come out into a rural context building their nation. When I think of the message I want to live, it's like me liking life. I want life and for you and for me is to have life and live it to the fullest. 
we look despair in the eye and we say, you do not have the final word. We're people who have our fingerprints on a torch of hope. That's Papua New Guinean fingerprints, Australian fingerprints, fingerprints from all around the world that preschooled because we want to live. So arise all the sons of his land. Let us sing of our joys to be free. Papua New Guinea. That's your home. Pretty much. <laughs> What's it like on the ship? Uh, oh, that's me. Melanie, yeah, you tell us. Melanie, you go. Um, so we've actually... People used to rotate between Townsville and PNG for like three months at a time, and we've lived on it for the last 15, 16 months now due to COVID. And it's just such a different one because our ship combines... It's, I think it's just such a weird community because it combines not only so many different nationalities, we have a core group of us who um, lead clinics or run the ships, so our maritime personnel who are there for longer periods, and we are from, I think we're from about 14 different nations, just within our group of about 25 to 30 of us. And then for outreaches, we have international volunteers come in for like two weeks or three weeks, and then suddenly we've got 60 other people who we get into this community who live in kind of tight quarters with us, and you can't get off the ship. And then it's just like this kind of a, like weird, amazing house of this is people who I live with and work with and I walk downstairs and play board games with. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird house. Um, and it rocks, which isn't great for someone who gets seasick. Um, but I think it's just an amazing composition of like just people from all different backgrounds and different abilities and different skill sets and that come together like with the one goal. So it makes it such a weird and different place but an amazing place because it's like okay we're here from so many different walks of life but like this is what we're going after so it's a it's a pretty cool place to live so did you meet over a board game <laughs> sort of <laughs> okay we're all wanting to know now that one's your one <laughs> um so we were pretty much out in the bush on a extended time uh we well, we packed our bags for like two to three weeks, but ended up being there from like four months. This is off the boat. Yeah. So sometimes we do like they call them land patrols, where we basically pack all our medical gear, uh, then like eight kilograms of personal gear, and then fly out maybe with MAF or other charter flights, and we just live in the villages and go from village to village delivering healthcare. Uh, and like partnering up with the local healthcare workers and just helping them out. Uh, so this was on one of those. Um, yeah, we were just play, uh, playing cards, and she was still playing with me after like many hours. So I figured maybe she might like me because she hasn't <laughs> n normally or wanted to beat you. I don't know. Yeah, is it? yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, normally most people don't play games for as long as I do. But she was keeping up, so I thought maybe that, maybe she likes me. I don't know. Okay, yes. great. <laughs> <laughs> so you your focus is medical, and you're both so an ophthalmic nurse and in sort of 
primary health care. I know you've done some TB training, polio training, uh, and COVID kind of work, and on the boat and off the boat. How do you kind of, on those trips, either people come to the boat or you go to villages, is, what do you see of, of faith, of, of people's faith, your faith, and are there opportunities to, alongside the healthcare to, to speak yeah. of Jesus? Yeah, because um, yeah, my, my background is, wasn't anything to do with medical uh, before I went up to PNG. Uh, it's funny, I picked up a job at Camden BRI and Richard Butler was my lab manager. Well um, done, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought I'd work in a lab again or use those skills. It was just kind of a random job. Uh, but then when I went to the ship, they were like, we need someone to lead our lab. And so I had like a crash course in microbiology. Yeah. Uh, how to test for TB. Um, again, something I never thought I'd do. Um, and so I get to lead teams. And the, the guys we have, uh, we accept anyone from different faiths, doesn't matter. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is them seeing just how well we work together. Um, and when in PNG, because uh, they declare themselves as a Christian nation, and so they're always like wanting prayer, and they kind of view it as good as medicine. Uh, so at the start of our clinics, we always pray for the day, uh, and then when we like see our patients, usually like offering prayer or doing house visits, uh, and like all our international volunteers who might not be Christian, uh, kind of like see that as well. Uh, I think one of my favorite stories, I was with a lab worker. Uh, she was from like a Hindi background, and just like seeing her become way more open, like asking questions about like our faith, what, why are we doing what we do, and why are you not getting paid and you still do all this crazy stuff, um, and then getting to see her like start praying for patients as well, and like yeah, being way more open. Uh, it's just really cool, like having that atmosphere and environment. Uh, we're just working together with, uh, I guess, mixed faith, um, but all with like the heart to like just serve and help others. Mm. So I really enjoy that. And you mentioned there you're not being paid. You you live by faith. <laughs> yeah. Genuinely, I don't I don't mean to put it, but it, in that sense of you're trusting for the Lord to provide for you. How, how's that, um, Melanie? In your experience, is it has that been tough or have you liberating or? I think it's been a really interesting one because actually back to when I thought I was going to come to YWAM, one of the first verses like in my, okay, God, I think this is what you're calling me for, but like, let's, let's look at logistics. And there's a verse in Matthew which goes on, you can't serve two masters, you can either serve God or money, which was kind of like, okay, that's another direct one, right? Um, and I think it was really interesting because for me it was like, okay, I, I understand how this works. I'm living in a community with people who have done this from a couple of months all the way up to people who have done this for 30 years and going like, okay, God, like, I see your faithfulness in everyone else's lives, but, like, does that apply to me? Which is one of those things that you, you know, you probably shouldn't be thinking, but one of those doubts that kind of creeps in. And I think my first donation towards, um, well, my first support that I got was actually, I basically, I couldn't pay rent at the end of DTS. It was like, okay, this is where I'm going. Um... And it was like my rent payment and looking at it and being like, okay, God, like, not only am I trusting for this, but I've kind of got a time frame on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually came from my younger brother, who is not a Christian, doesn't 
at all really understand what I do. And he messaged me randomly and was like, you know that thing like four years ago that you paid for while we were in high school? It was a Spotify membership. He's like, I would like to pay you back for that for the two years you held it, but I'm going to double it because it's been so long. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's like exactly my rent. And I was like, that's completely unnecessary because yeah. it was something that I, like we paid for as a family. Like, it's fine. He's like, no, I'm going to do it. And as he was like, I've sent it through. And so then sitting there being like, okay, God, like, not only have you provided, like, in, and come through, but this was from someone that I never would have expected would have completely written off as, like, okay, God, I can see that you, you can do this, but, like, it's probably not going to come through my family or at kind of that one of, like, the kind of weirdest one where I was, like, there's no chance would have been my younger brother. And I think so to start with that and just really felt God being, like, you know, like, I've got you and also, like, that thing about don't, like, I'm not in a box, like, watch me move, not just through your life, but, like, through other people's lives for this. Yeah. So it's definitely been an interesting experience, but, like, from then onwards and just seeing God, like, provide in my life and the lives of, like, just the people around me as well is incredibly humbling. Um, and I think just one of those testimonies that you stand on of, like, not only have I seen you provide once, but just that continual bit has been... Uh, I don't want to say, yeah, I, I think it's just been an incredible one of like, what does it look like to rely on God for something so different? Like in my life, of like, what does it look like for finances has been a challenge, but such a rewarding one. Mm. You kind of spoke a moment ago that the ship wobbles and you get seasick. I mean, that must be just one thing that is hard. And seasickness is rubbish, and it's an unpleasant thing. But what keeps you going? You know, that, that you've been on the ship for uh, over a year. I think you said 16 months. Yeah. It's a crazy house, vibrant but crazy. What keeps you at it? What kind of motivates you to keep going? I think it's just for me, one of the things, like, when I came to PNG, I was like, okay, God, I, I see that you want me here. But, like, you're going to have to give me the heart for it. Because, like, I've got the heart theoretically and, like, you know, in my brain, I can see it. Like, healthcare, delivering health needs, like, I see it on spreadsheets. Like, I get it. But, like, that distance between your heart and your brain is sometimes a very long way. And so I was like, okay, God, like, I'm doing this, but what does it look like to have a heart for it as well? And I think those, so, um, the, at the beginning, because our ship was actually in dry dock, which is why we went on a land patrol for so long. And just probably, again, like a month, month and a half into it, just was like, oh, okay, that snuck up on me. And I think throughout, especially this last year of like, okay, like I've got a heart for this and these are, I, I think you weirdly adopt them. I'm not sure if that's, but like they become your people as well and your communities. And so there's places that we get to go back to um, every three months at the moment because we're focused just in one province. And like, it's not just a familiar village name. It's like, oh, we're going here. And there's that one kid that I'd really like to check up on because I saw her last time and I'm not sure how she's going. Well, like, there's this another place where it's like, okay, did a house visit for an older gentleman. And I'm really just curious to see if his son came back and built that house. Mm. And did they decide on a window? Did they not decide on a window? And so just these ones and, like, the people and the villagers become part of, like, an extension of your people. And I think that care for it on a very healthcare level as well of, like, in villages we're going to sometimes we're the only health workers that have been there in the past two years. And so when we open clinic cards of kids, it's like, there's my handwriting three times because I've been on triage three times in that village and just watching, like, in one way, the health outcomes. So it's like, okay, 
on paper what we're achieving here, and on paper but in practicality as well, is huge, but also that bit of being like, and what does this look like for this village? What does it look like for healthcare here? And that bit of like, what does life and life abundantly look like in this community? And I think that's the kind of thing that makes you do the long days and the seasickness is just kind of part of the territory of like, actually this is what I'm going after because they kind of become your people as well. Mm. David, what's coming up? I mean, obviously getting married, um, big step of faith. Uh, tell us about the kind of coming months and, and what's you kind of sensing with the Lord in, in, in the kind of wider picture. Yep. Um, so yeah, we fly back to Australia uh, on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday morning we fly out. Um, and we'll be going back to Townsville uh, in Australia, which is that white marker. Oh, is it green? Um, looks white. Okay. Green. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the green dot um, is Townsville. And that's where we have a, I guess it's the YWAM headquarters for the ship. Uh, and then the red dot is Port Moresby, which is the capital of Papua New Guinea. Uh, so we'll be going back to Townsville for a little bit. Not entirely sure what we'll be doing, um, but the ship could be around because it's coming back for some repairs. So we could be needed to just help with that, help get the medical stuff uh, ready and things like that. Um, and then roughly after six weeks, we might be looking at flying back out to Papua New Guinea. Um, but the ship will be remaining in Australia uh, to like go through a lot of repairs, because uh, it's quite an old ship at the moment, so they've got to take it out of the water again and do some repair work. So we're looking at what it looks like now to do more land-based patrols, so living in the villages for a long time. Um, so that's what we assuming we'll go back into it's not like set in stone um so yeah just exploring how that can be i guess the norm until the ships uh back in the ocean um so yeah there's a lot of planning going on with that um so yeah that should be and then you're back fun. here for christmas and yep we're looking at coming back end of november um because melanie needs to be in the country for a certain amount of days to get uh, like a marriage visa and and all that process uh, so back here end of November and we'll the wedding looking at 7th of January um, so yeah we'll be here for over a month and a bit marvelous yeah so I know you've got some some pictures on the screen that you want to talk us yeah. through but there may be some some questions uh, towards the end and we're going to pray for you obviously um, if if anyone's got you know maybe two or three questions not two or three each but we can <laughs> if there's anything you'd like to hear from them um, we can do that as well, but talk us through some of these things. Yeah, we thought we might start with some maps. One, because I love a good map, um, but also because prior to going to PNG, my PNG geography is pretty rubbish. Um, so we've got Port Moresby down at the red dot, which is the capital, but we actually work out in Western Province at the moment, which is the, as the name suggests, the westernmost province of PNG. Um, this is one of the most remote areas in Papua New Guinea. Um, and so one of the hardest places to get healthcare to as well and getting the services. So we work across the two rivers, so the Bamu River, the Fly River, um, and then across the coastal treaty villages, which is 150 nautical miles of coastline, um, which borders on Australia. So Australia is just down below there. And then we've also got, when we do a bit of inland work, we head up to Lake Murray, up the top there as well. 
And so, how long does it take to get from the coast to Lake Murray? Yeah, so from the coast to Lake Murray, it's actually an air flight from Daru, and it's about two hours flight, and that's normally with MAF. It's some lovely dirt and grass runways, okay. which is good fun. Yeah. Sweet. What's next? Aha. Uh, that's our ship, and yeah, it's pretty common that the locals come up to greet us uh, in their canoes, um, and yeah, usually they just want to have a chat or they're just curious. Uh, sometimes we can get in, uh, interesting moments where they come up in their canoes with their sick people, so we then, there and then, on the aft deck, just turn into a little clinic, and yeah, there's been so many stories where people have rocked up with really severe malaria, and we've been able to help them. Uh, in some situations, people have come up uh, close to giving birth, and we've been able to deliver the baby um, despite the complications they had. Um, and I've also got trained on uh, working as a deckhand, so doing like the watches at night, uh, just constantly keeping an eye out on the locals, because you never know who could turn up. Sometimes they could turn up middle of the night, so I'm really sick. So you gotta alert all the clinic guys. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy it. Just seeing them there. I think just back on that, often in these rivers, we're the closest health facility, and we're also the biggest. So we're a registered um, hospital, a health centre in PNG, but it's also for a lot of people it might be two days paddle to get down to the health centre. And if we're sitting up top, they tend to come to us in the river system instead. Um, because it's just closer, and if they've got someone really sick, it's just the first person they hit they can give aid. Uh, I, yep, so this is our daily commute to work. Uh, it can range from five minute to two hour boat ride, and then usually greeted with a nice muddy walk, uh, which I take any day over their drop toilets, because sometimes the boat driver pulls up right next to or underneath the drop toilet which is where they uh, do their stuff into the ocean. Um, but yeah, usually around the western province, it's pretty muddy. Um, you gotta be pretty cautious of crocodiles. Um, but yeah, we make a big chain, carry all our gear. Uh, the Papua New Guineans are amazing at helping us because their balance is far superior. Yeah, somehow they float over the mud, they don't sink. You've not learned that skill? No, no okay. <laughs> Cool. So this is clinic. Um, and clinic looks like something different every day. So these are two um, along the coastal bit. So we've got one, we're set up on a beach and basically just under a fishing hut. And the other one, they've put us in the community shelter. And so this is our primary healthcare team. So we run um, general outpatients, so like doctor consults for general sicknesses, um, wound care, got a weird rash, um, all those kind of things, as well as um, routine immunization for children. COVID vaccine, what else do we do? Family planning and antenatal, which is a big one. Uh, TB testing for David when he gets his delicious sputum coming his way, um, and all things COVID at the moment as well. And so setups tend to vary quite considerably from we're all in this together to this hut over here, we've actually got beach surgery going on and we're spread out over the beach and we've got family planning antenatal up in one hut and then there's immunizations at the other end and so we're kind of spread across a beach. So. And yeah, this one's our triage desk. So this is actually in Central about oh, six weeks ago. Um, and so again, this one's underneath a church, a very sturdy, large church in this one. And so it's just a big open space. And this is our triage desk. 
um, that day. Hi, uh, so a couple of pictures of me. Um, so on the picture on the right, um, so in that village, I think all I did was standing in that spot, just doing malaria tests after malaria test. I think about 95% were just all positive. Um, so yeah, malaria is like a huge thing uh, in Western province, particularly in the Barmy River, Fly River. Um, but again, this was like some random skill I picked up and been able to do it. Uh, it's not like within my scope to give the medicine, um, but I can like, yeah, Mel Melanie can do that. Um, but yeah, I can easily just do all the testing. It's like a drop of blood on like a similar cartridge, like a COVID rapid test. And then you get the result in like 15 minutes. Um, so yeah, it's something I enjoy doing because it's like, it's something we can treat there and then. Um, so it gives a lot of like satisfaction. Uh, and then the other picture, uh, if we go back one to the, yeah. So the picture, um, I got a nice, I guess, headrest thingy. Uh, they put on like a nice welcome ceremony. Um, so at the start of the day, we do like some teachings um, so that was me doing a COVID teaching, uh, which, yeah, it's now like a big priority in our clinics. Everyone's super scared of COVID. No matter how remote you go to, you'll find a guy with a phone who's read on Facebook, like all the funny rumors about COVID, and he's spread it around. And the rumors. Yeah. yeah. So to begin with, um, it was pretty... Um, not the safest place for us to go into clinics. Uh, some people wouldn't even turn up. Uh, we heard stories of healthcare workers having like rocks thrown at them. Because um, there's like a really strong belief that the vaccine is triple six, or it has like a microchip, or it's gonna kill me, things like that. Um, so we usually spend maybe anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours doing teachings, trying to like bring some truth uh, and it's great being able to have that like missionary background uh, and just to remind the people that in the past when missionaries came to Papua New Guinea, uh, they brought the word of God, but they also brought vaccines. And just seeing the people remember that, realizing that the vaccines, you know, they're not from the enemy uh, and just to like regain the trust of the people. So do you vaccinate uh, as well as a ship or? Uh, yeah, so the ship vaccinates. Uh, we set up COVID vaccination stations. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, so yep. That's me decked out in all the COVID PPE. Um, it's you become like an oven, mm -hmm. and there's just drips of sweat just building up in that suit because uh, it's like almost 100% humidity, uh, 30 to 40 degrees. Um, and yeah, I, I get sweaty anyway. So yeah, it's, it's not the most pleasant, but yeah. Uh, and then the other side is me, uh, I'm preparing uh, samples for TB testing. Mm -hmm. So that's in our lab. So we have the lab on the ship where I take all the samples, uh, run them through uh, the fancy machine that tests it all, get the result in about uh, an hour and a half, and then I'm able to message them the result or contact them uh, just like through word of mouth uh, the next day, uh, which is pretty amazing because in these remote places, 
for them to get a, like a TB test or checkup. Uh, it could take weeks or months because they then have to send the sample off in a canoe all the way to the health center. Uh, by the time it arrives, it might not be in a good state to test because mm. uh, TB dies in sunlight in like five minutes. And you want to preserve it if you're going to test it. Mm. Um, so it's, it's pretty hard to transport it. But just having the ship there, uh, basically next door in the river, you can just provide really fast uh, testing. Yeah, so this is a bit of what I do. So at the moment, I lead a primary healthcare team, so which is a huge privilege. I get to lead a team of anywhere from about 10 to 15 um, international volunteers, healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers alike, um, to set up our primary healthcare clinics. And every now and then get to do some fun stuff in the mix of it as well. Um, I think my favourite thing is this photo on this side. Um, this is an insertion of a contraceptive implant. Um, so in PNG, they do implants for three or five years, and it's just a massive thing um, that I suppose we get to do because a lot of the places that we visit, we look at the stats for PNG of about 80% of um, people live in rural and remote communities, and one of the big things for us on the ship is overcoming isolation. And I think, as I said previously, sometimes we're the only healthcare workers who have been there in the last two years. And so basic healthcare like contraception just isn't available or isn't available regularly because the health centre may not be manned, they may not have stock, somewhere may have happened. Um, so a lot of the time we get to come into villages and be like, this is what we can offer. And so it's a huge privilege because we get to sit down often with um, women and husbands and wives and go like, this is something we can offer, is this something that's wanted? And just to see women come up and it's in a lot of these places, you're like, one of the questions we ask is like, how many kids have you got? This is a routine one. And they're like, nine. And you're like, okay, do you want any more kids? No. And you're like, okay, I can actually help with that. Um, and I think just the ability to do that because there's so many, um, maternal death rate is huge. And so being able to give back that ability for people to actually make that choice about their family and um, about their livelihood as well because many of these people are farmers and so live off what they can catch or live off what they're farming. And so being able to, when they're talking about it, of like, my land won't support another kid, like, what does it look like to do this? And so it's one of my favourite things to do. You've got to get a little bit more training so it's not a huge amount of us that do it. So it's great fun. I normally get to hand my radio off a lot of the time to David at the moment and be like, I've got my head down for 30 minutes putting these things in. Um, and just watching the joy on women's faces to, like, you put them in, and one of my colleagues, she's like, congratulations, no babies, five years. <laughs> Which is sometimes really strange. When I first heard it, I was like, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, but watching just ladies and grin of that bit of, like, okay, this means so much. And for, like, short term, but also just even their ability to live um, in some of these places. So that's pretty, that's probably one of my favourite ones that I get to be a part of. Me doing more things. Mm -hmm. Huzzah. This is one of the commonest questions we get about our footwear because we don't tend to wear shoes a lot, but we get to walk over some great logs and test your balance. And again, the Papua New Guineans float over them and at 10 times the speed we do. And then you'll get the old lady who's like 80 being like, Do you want to hold my hand? And you're like, Oh, I'm taking us both down. Um, but yeah, and then we just thought we'd have a fun photo. These are our terribly delightful five toe shoes. So each of your toes has its nice individual sock. And they are absolutely great in the mud. Like you can be thigh deep and they don't come off, which is very rare for shoes. But we're reminded by one of our friends when we announced our engagement of like these are not suitable wedding attire. <laughs> <laughs>
so this was taken at the start of our land patrol, um, CF so flying out with MAF, uh, and that in the center is pretty much all our gear, so for a month, uh, eight kgs each per person of personal gear, so just a couple of chains of outfits, uh, closed toe shoes for our risk assessment, uh, and then just a couple of basic hygiene stuff. And then we also brought with us uh, land dental. So we had a fold-up dental chair. Uh, we had a dentist with us and all his equipment and gear. So we were actually able to do some basic dental care in the villages, uh, pulling out teeth. Like oral hygiene is a huge issue in PNG. So it was really cool to be able to fly out with that and be able to do that service as well. Um, so yeah, we, we use MAF a lot and really good partnership with them. Uh, this is, it's called the Kini Swamp or Kini River. Uh, this is out in Western province. Uh, so we, our boats got us as far as we could and we had really the choice to go through the swamp or spend a lot of money on fuel and go all the way around. Um, so we of course chose to go through it. Um, it was probably the most fun but not so fun walks I've ever done because you're carrying all your gear. Um, a lot of the time there's logs submerged under the water that you kind of walk on, but then either side there's like a one meter drop into just swamp and mud. And so you're kind of like walking blind, uh, hoping the person in front is telling you the truth on where they're stepping. Um, but yeah, I think that took us about three hours, but then the locals do it in two or two and a half, mm. carrying twice as much gear. So it's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, it just blew my mind just how, um, the, yeah, the Papua New Guinea is just how strong they are because they do this like a couple times a week uh, and just how helpful they were at helping us carry our gear, guiding us. And yeah, it was just a huge blessing because we probably wouldn't have made it without them. And I think with that one as well, this actually connects um, a place called Balamo with Wasua. And that's where the health centre is, one of the regions in the Fly River. And so this is what the healthcare workers do every month to get all their gear down. Like there's no dinghies, nothing. So they actually get a bunch of people or they themselves do it multiple times. So it's two to three hours each way carrying vaccines, carrying health gear. And I think like we have the amazing part that part of what we do is come alongside the local health system and we get to work with these workers. And I'm just constantly blown away. Like you do something like this and for us it's like, that's an adventure that once it gets back to the ship of what we've done, we might not be able to do again. But just watching people who do this like multiple times a week and this is like what healthcare workers, for them, like this isn't part of their job description, this isn't part of what they get paid for, but it's like there, there is the medicine and my supplies and here I am and this is, this is just what I do because these are my people and mm -hmm. if I choose to dig my feet in and say I won't do it until I get fuel no one gets the assistance they need. So like those kind of things, I think when we get to do them once or twice, we're like, okay, this was fun or it blows my mind of like that, but just watching that this is something that they do multiple times a week. This is what pregnant mamas do when they're eight months pregnant to go up and give birth. And you're just like, mm. okay, what does this look like for me as a healthcare worker? It's just, mm. it kind of hits you in the feels. And this is just not small. Uh, so this is a health center in Lake Murray. Um, where we basically slept. Uh, so that's kind of like a typical way we sleep, just hoist up some mozzie nets in a hut. Uh, this was one of the nicest huts 
there weren't any holes in the floor because uh, sometimes there's lots of gaps in the floor so mosquitoes and bugs can crawl up which makes your mosquito net useless um, and I don't think there were many chickens because usually they wake you up at like two in the morning so that's, that was one of the nicest spots um, but yeah we basically just live uh, where we're at uh, try and look for some markets for some food uh, we bring all our food with us it's pretty basic like rice and crackers because um, we have to travel pretty light um, but sometimes there's markets or some of the locals give us food from the garden uh, which is really nice That's just some photos of us prepping food. It's great fun. You go from, yeah, at the end of your clinic day. Normally you're doing clinic in the same place you're sleeping, so it goes from everyone in there to setting up your mosquito nets and then come about 5 o'clock, it's a wander down to the market of what are we going to find? And then it's cooking it and the P&G mamas and our healthcare workers kind of look at you and they're like, okay, we're going to teach you guys how to cook, which is a blessing because, yeah, you often get the white ladies can't cook on fires and we get that. <laughs> I think this one's our final one, and this one's actually up at Lake Murray, so that health centre we saw. So one of the big things we do as well is wanting to come alongside and deliver healthcare, um, but also train and capacity build. Um, so this is the amazing staff up there, and um, we actually were there when they detected their first COVID cases. So we came up with, um, because of our lab on the ship, we were able to do a mobile lab out on land, and we were able to test for COVID and we actually found the first COVID cases in the region which turned into a COVID outbreak. Um, and one of the things was when we sat down with the healthcare workers and going through like, what, what does this actually mean? What does this mean for this region? Was realizing like, okay, how do we go through and prepare? And it's like, these people, want, we didn't have PPE to be putting on, so the personal protective equipment, and they'd never learned how to put it on or take it off. And so what does that mean? Um, so an amazing thing our boss spent basically a day on the phone between the Australian government and the PNG Department of Health and we got a helicopter in the next day of donated medical supplies because we had no masks, no gowns, no gloves. Um, and the boxes actually said, um, with love from the people of South Korea, because it was amazing, because I'm not sure if you guys saw on Facebook, but at the beginning of the pandemic, countries were donating um, their additional masks or PPE to places that didn't have it. And then so standing in a country on the other side of the world being like, oh, I'm, I'm a recipient of that, of like, PNG doesn't have it, this area doesn't have it. And then so I think just the amazingness to one, have it brought in like in the space of a day of like, we need this here, it comes in by helicopter. And then just the humbling and amazingness of standing there being like, okay, this was donated from people not necessarily out of their excess, because this was done at the beginning of the pandemic, but like out of what they had and what they wanted to give. And then re-equipping people during their first wave um, it was just, it was just one of those really humbling moments. Um, but then we were able to come alongside. We had um, five of us nurses. One of them actually managed a COVID ward in New Zealand prior to joining our team and come alongside them from the get-go and being like, cool, what does PPE look like? How do we put it on? How do you protect yourself? What does this look like? Um, and able to run a COVID response in their region with them. And just to have them go from the beginning of that meeting, it was about a three-hour roundtable, how is this going to look for this next week and a half, from we can't do this, like, how do we protect our family? This is going to spread, like, what do we have to do this? And, like, we do as healthcare workers, but, you know, that fear that we all felt at the beginning of the pandemic of, like, but what does this look like if I take it home? To be at the end of that being like, okay, 
them devising a plan of like, okay, this is what it looks like. We have the skills. Can you teach us this? What does it look like for the next two weeks for you to come alongside us? And this one's one of it's one of those dorky photos, and these guys are sweating like troopers. But just one of those ones that I think really captures the kind of thing that we can we can do and come alongside because we get so much value from PNG and serving there. And it's just like, what can we give? And so much of it is yes, doing the aid work that is needed here and now, but that capacity building um, for long term. I think it's us. That's an outfit for your wedding. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> They're kind of social distancing head markers, though, because those things are very pointy. <laughs> Fantastic. It's so great to hear. Is there any a couple of questions? Karen. Yeah, you answer, just for the recording, the question is how do we how do you maintain a cold chain for vaccinations in a hot climate? Yeah, so those for those that don't know that your vaccines have to be kept within a certain temperature window, two to eight degrees. Um, so we take everything in vaccine eskies, and so we coming from the ship, we've got freezers on board, um, and we can get through a clinic day with just um, they're like a four ice brick esky, and we've got thermometers to make sure they keep within temperature, um, which works really well. When we go on overnights, we have these massive, big chunky eskies, and we can get anywhere from about three to five days out of them. But it does become, it's a massive challenge when we're out in the field, because the ship gives us a lot of luxuries, like we have aircon, we've got hot showers, we've got freezers, things we love in life. Um, but out in the field, there's often, one of your main problems is we can only vaccinate from the health center, because there's no freezing capacity. Um, so we do some patrols where it's, okay, we think we can go, like how far can we get with these vaccines to get them home safely as well? Because we obviously don't want to burn them and make them unusable. But it's definitely a massive challenge for some of these health centres. Um, but there's so many really awesome organisations who come in and are putting in um, solar panel fridges and freezers with that capacity for, okay, if we give you a fridge and a freezer, that means that you can actually vaccinate through your catchment, not just at the health centre. But definitely a huge challenge that I have prayed over a lot of eskies in the last year. Mm. Thank you, Karen. One more question, if there are any. We'd love to pray for you. Give us a, so going back to Australia and uh, the work there, preparing for marriage, uh, and then obviously the future. Is there anything else you'd like us to pray into the ongoing work, obviously in PNG? I think that's a good one. Maybe just as... Um, so the ship will obviously back, so we'll be doing some more land stuff and just looking into, like, what does it look like as we roll into that model? Because um, we've done it before, but when we're now focusing on that, and I think there's just... It's putting together all the strings to form a nice braid, but there's so many things in motion of just the right sequence as we step into that would be really okay. good. We've so enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you. And uh, we're so excited for you both as a couple. And uh, we're, we're proud of you, we love you, and we pray for you. We're thankful to be as a church, to be able to support you in prayer and uh, helping to keep you there. Um, so let's, let's few of us pray for Melanie and David.